0: All right, we'll get started a little early today because we got a long way to go. We got three chapters in the Gospel of Luke, beginning with chapter 6, verse uh, 17, if I remember right. Yeah. And uh, in chapter Luke chapter 6, this is Jesus' first uh, big sermon. It uh, wasn't his first teaching, but it was his first You know, major sermon that has a lot of length to it and depth. Uh, There's four that are recorded, four major, you know, long sermons that last more than one, you know, at least a chapter or more in uh, the Gospels. And this is the first one early in his ministry. The essence of this sermon. And by the way, it's Matthew's, uh, in Matthew 5, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is basically the same sermon, but this is the sermon on the level. So he... No, I'm serious. That's what it says. Look at verse 17. It says, He descended with them and stood on a level place. So he's in a different location geographically. And uh, he's speaking, if you go ahead and look at the audience in uh, Tyre and Sidon, uh, he's speaking to a different group. So it's the same sermon... Uh, basically, but it's uh, in a different location to a different group. And the essence of the of the sermon is the golden rule. and we we're, we're all taught the golden rule pretty early on, right? And uh, the essence of this sermon is the golden rule. And this is where you find it. You probably thought your parents made that up. But it's right here. You can find it in uh, Luke six uh, verse uh, thirty one, And the essence of the golden rule is unselfishness. That's what it's about, about being unselfish, treating others uh, like you want to be treated yourself. And perhaps the best illustration of, of unselfishness is a negative one of selfishness, like this episode of Seinfeld. People never learn. Total selfishness. Just the opposite of the golden rule. And so in this sermon, uh, you're familiar, it's the blessed sermon. It's the Beatitudes. And this is where you hear blessed are the poor and you go, now what? (laughs) How can that be? And Matthew explains that Jesus was talking about referring to the poor in spirit, meaning humility. Blessed are those who humble, who are humble. Uh, And being humble... You're humble about your, your spirituality and about your sin and about your weaknesses and, of course, about your lack of righteousness. Also, it goes on to say, blessed are the, the merciful, the people who are persecuted. And it says, love your enemies. And after a while, you go, who does that? Who, who's he talking to? You know? And so what this is is radical teaching. This is radical teaching about the kingdom of God. It's not the way things are now. It's not the way Christians really are, but it's how they should be. So the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Level here is about the way things should be and will be in the kingdom. That's something that we can aspire to, but we can probably never gain until we get into the kingdom of God. So it's radical teaching. They've never heard it before. In the Greek uh, language of the first century, there was no word for humility. They didn't have a word for it. it. Humility was considered a vice. See, nobody wanted to be humble. That meant you got walked over and pushed around and never got your way. And so in the Middle East where Israel was, Alexander the Great conquered the Middle East about 330 B.C. And then he Hellenized the entire area so the whole mediterranean world was hellenized by alexander and the greeks that came after him and what that means is the greek language came the greek culture philosophy religion and even israel was hellenized you'll see in the gospel accounts that everybody speaks greek and you're we're talk uh, in the book of acts they talk about the hellenistic jews and so uh, they remained racially as Jews, but they were Hellenized in the sense they were just kind of engulfed in that culture uh, for the last, you know, two, about the last three over 300 years. They had, they had been uh, immersed in it, and they were influenced by it. And so uh, their virtues were self-promotion. Greek virtues were self-promotion, aggression, self-exaltation, ambition, Uh, All these things were considered virtues, and humility was unknown. Nobody wanted to be humble. And so Jesus' teaching was just totally radical. It was revolutionary. And remember, uh, Jesus told the parable about the the, uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. And in those days, the Pharisee would have been the good guy. The Pharisee would have been the law keeper, the religious guy. But when Jesus told the parable, he reversed it. The Pharisee stood up in the temple, and being a good guy and a religious guy, he boasted. And he said, thank God I am better than other people. I'm not like these people, these sinners and these crooks. I, on the other hand, do all the religious stuff. I fast twice a week. I pray five times a day. I keep all the laws. I pay the tithes. (laughs) And so this was the attitude, you know of self-promotion and exaltation of yourself. And that's the way things were in their culture. But Jesus, in this sermon, his first sermon, reverses the public perception. He changes it all by stating that the humble, repentant sinner is the one who goes away justified by God. And I can just imagine in his audience, he's not only got the town, and village people, the common people, the fishermen, and everybody else. But he's also got a certain number of Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders. And they're all hearing this going, What is he saying? It's radical. It's revolutionary. They couldn't believe what he was saying. But the thing that really impressed them was that he taught with authority. And his message was convicting. So even though it was new and and they'd never heard it before and it sounded wrong to them, it convicted somewhere deep down inside they were convicted by it. I think deep down inside everybody knows this is true. Everybody knows this is good stuff, right? And so Jesus is just reversing everything they've been told and influenced in their culture. So at the time popular thought and tradition and teaching was the opposite contrary to what jesus was saying and so what was he doing here and and i've uh i remember hearing the sermon on the mount and this sermon uh, many times in church and it seemed that the minister was making out like this is the way of salvation jesus taught this sermon and we're to obey it We're to be like this in order to be saved that's the way i took it anyway they may not have been but is that right is Is this the way of salvation? Of course not. The way of salvation in the New Testament is you are saved by the grace of God and it is received by faith. That's the way of salvation. God has sent his son into the world to die on the cross and atone for our sin. That's his free gift. And we receive that free gift by faith. That's the way of salvation. And so what was Jesus doing here? This was an assault, an assault on their self-righteousness. He was saying, you think you're self-righteous? You think you're righteous? You think you can do it alone? You think you can keep the law? You think you're a religious good person? Let me tell you what the kingdom of God is really like. And so he did in this sermon, and at the end of which, they're all looking around at each other going, well, we can't do that. Love your enemies perfectly. If they punch you in the face, let them punch the other side? I don't do that. I've never done that. Never get revenge. Never, you know, never have uh, the inner desire to commit any of the other sins. So it's not a matter of just outward acts, but it's also what it, what's in your heart. Who's perfect inside in your thought life and in your, what you're thinking inside? I mean, nobody can do that. That's the point. Jesus is telling them, "Blessed are the humble, because they recognize their weakness, they recognize their need for a Savior," and that's what this is all about. So, uh, no one can can do all these things, but it gives you the pattern of what we expect, what God expects of us. The bar is set very high. How many here can jump high jump ten feet? Anybody? No hands. Wait a minute. Charlie Adams raised his hand. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's putting the bar so high they know they can't jump it. And so they're all standing around going, oh, something new and different here. Who is this guy? And so after this sermon here in chapter 6, pick it up in chapter 7 through 9, after he's laid out what their great need is, they they need him. They need a Savior. They can't do it themselves. And Jesus has laid that out in this sermon. And I don't have time to go through all the details of it. So in chapter 7 through 9, now having uh, exposed the hypocrisy and the sin of the religious leaders and, of course, all the people, they're all sinners, as we are, and having uh, taught a radical revolutionary new way of life this this should be a life-changing sermon that he taught right and so they're all looking around going wait a minute who is this guy who is this guy who's teaching with authority who is this guy that's convicting us and making us feel this way who is this guy and through and so throughout chapter seven through nine they'll continue to ask that question And it will be answered in chapter 9. We'll end with the answer. And so, chapter 7 through 9, the author is going to give us seven miracles and some teaching with them uh, that were fully seen and verified by all, all these people, the multitudes and the religious leaders. And even his enemies admitted that they were miraculous, supernatural works. They were miracles no one denied it no one said well that was just a trick these were so awesome and so big that they couldn't deny it they just knew something incredible was going on here and they didn't know what it was and so seven miracles that would verify that would explain who Jesus is and these miracles and his teaching revealed that Jesus is the son of God sent by God to be a suffering servant to die on the cross as we said, as a vicarious sacrifice for our sins. That's who Jesus is. And little wonder that a proud, Hellenized world could not imagine that the Christ, the King, could be a humble, suffering servant that would die for us. I mean, to their mind, that was insane. God's going to come, and then God's going to die? How can that be? And if He's going to deliver us from these Romans... How come he gets killed? I mean, it just doesn't make sense at all. When we think of of leaders, we think of kings and Alexander the Great and Caesar and all these great people. They're not like this. Who is this guy? And so these seven miracles are going to explain who he is. And so we're going to go through them uh, as fast as possible. Hopefully I'll make it. It's a real challenge. The first one in chapter 7. I call the sincere centurion's servant. Say that fast. (laughs) It says, when Jesus had completed all his discourse, discourse, so when he had preached his sermon, he went to Capernaum and a certain centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And this centurion was an important guy to the Jewish people because he was on their side. He even paid for their synagogue, Jesus is told. We really need you to uh, take care of this guy because he's our major benefactor. He put up the money to build our synagogue. And so Jesus started, verse 6, on his way with them to go help the centurion's servant. And look what happens. Word comes. A message comes back from the centurion. Verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself further For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. You're so great and wonderful and I'm nobody. You see the humility here? He's just been teaching this in the Sermon on the Mount. But look what happens. And he goes and says, I too am a man under authority and soldiers under me. And I say go and they go and come and they come. And you have control over nature, over illnesses, the whole deal. And so he says, you say the word, and my, my slave, my servant, will be healed. Verse 9, now when Jesus heard this, Jesus says, wow. And look at this comment. And this is particularly interesting. Remember, Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles, right? And so Luke makes sure this is, a, this is probably very important to him and his audience. Jesus says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith that that's that's why this is recorded here i mean jesus probably did who knows how many hundreds of miracles but this is important because the author and of course jesus at the time is pointing out to his own countrymen hey you've been hearing my, te- my teaching you've been seeing these miracles but you still don't get it you still don't have the faith and here's this gentile so it's a great contrast between his audience in Israel and between this Gentile centurion guy. Uh, And so in uh, verse 11, you have another miracle. They're going to another city, a little town called Nain there in verse 11. And as they come up to the city gates, they're not in the city yet. All the cities were walled and had gates. And as they're walking up to it, a large multitude is coming out. And it's a funeral procession. And so verse 12 says, As he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out who was the only son of his mother who was a widow. So she'd been married and had one son, and then her husband died. Now she's a widow with a son. So she's got a son who's basically supporting her. But after the son dies, now she's alone and she's helpless. And so verse 13, Jesus felt compassion upon her and said to her do not weep and he came up and touched the coffin and the hearers came to a halt and he said to the dead guy young man I say to you arise and the spirit his spirit returned to him and he sat up you imagine being in that crowd seeing that would that blow your mind and of course naturally what are they going to say Whoa, who is this guy that has the power of life and death? We've just seen something really special. And in chapter uh, 7, verse 18, you have a story uh, that gives great teaching that's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Level, all that Jesus had been teaching in that first sermon. It involves John the Baptist. We were introduced to John the Baptist early on in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus first came out and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod and put in jail. He's probably been roughed up and threatened and put in jail, and they're probably telling him they're going to execute him. So just like John the Baptist, what would we do? We'd be sitting in jail going, now wait a minute. If Jesus is the Messiah... If he's the king, we've been the deliverer we've been waiting on, why am I in prison? Why have I been roughed up? Why are they going to execute me? And so he sent his, his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, to ask Jesus, Are you the guy? <laughs> I mean, this is the same John the Baptist that saw the Holy Spirit descend, heard God's voice. He himself pointed Jesus out. As the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world. And yet, because of His circumstances, He has doubts. Can you relate to that? You believe in Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. But when you get in the worst difficulties or the biggest trouble of your life, what happens? You start to have some doubts. You have some doubts. And so Jesus is going to respond. And, of course, He's going to tell the disciples... Go, verse 22, go and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. So even though you know this to be true, it's backed up by all the miracles and all the teaching. Surely you know that I fulfilled all the prophecy, and so you know I am the one. And he goes on to talk about, to to the audience here, they're probably going, can you believe John the Baptist asked that or had that doubt? And so he says... Look at verse 28. I say to you among those born of women, of you know, human beings, there is no one greater than John. No one greater than John. He's a great man. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You see how that relates back to his sermon? In his sermon he said, uh, you people act like and claim to be self-righteous, but you're not. But those in the kingdom will have these attitudes of loving their enemy and the golden rule and turning the other cheek and merciful and on and on and on. And so he's making that same point using John the Baptist. Even though this is the greatest man who ever lived, he's not up to that kingdom standard yet. He still needs, he's a sinner that needs a savior. And then once his sins are atoned for, He'll be in the kingdom, and he'll really be great. And that's what we have to look forward to as well. And so uh, verse 36, you have that, through 50, you have that great uh, contrast uh, with John the Baptist of a low sinner, a harlot. So here's the greatest man ever. Now in verse 36, we're introduced to someone else. It's just the opposite side of the coin. And the question will be, Well, what about her? John the Baptist needs Jesus. He's not in the kingdom yet. His sins need to be atoned for. What about this harlot? What about this horrible woman who's a terrible sinner? Well, you'll see in the story this this harlot repents of her lifestyle and her sin. And she comes humbly, complete humility. Everything that Jesus taught in that sermon, she comes with that kind of humility, that pour in spirit that love that jesus taught about and she comes in and she is so thankful for jesus forgiving her sin that she's pouring a uh, uh, perfume on his feet and and doing and, and just really uh worshiping him and the people with him were these religious leaders and they and they said surely you know that this is a horrible woman we would never be in her presence, and yet you let her come in here and do all this. And of course, Jesus gives them a, a great proverbial question. He says, uh, "One person was forgiven a little, and one person was forgiven a lot. Who do you think would be the most thankful?" And they, well, I guess the one who's forgiven a lot. He said, "Exactly." So here's a lady, a woman who totally realizes the bulk of her sin and how great it is and therefore she understands how wonderful and blessed is the forgiveness that Jesus offers and she's thankful for it Uh, and so he says here in verse 47 for this reason I say to you her sins her sins which are many have been forgiven so in that sense, she and John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, are in the same boat, which is hard for us to fathom. Surely John the Baptist will be in a different place than this woman, but Jesus atones for both of their sins, and he forgives both of them. And she said, he says, I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And look at their question. Verse 49, a recurring question after each one of these deals. Who is this man who even forgives sins? Who is this guy? Who thinks he can forgive sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And then I love, I love these stories in chapter 8. That, that I just love them. Chapter 8, uh, verse 22. Skip forward a little bit. We'll skip a little bit of the... We'll skip the parable of the soils and the sower. We did that in the parables. You were all here. You heard it. You got that one down. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll skip the parable there. Uh, verse 22. An awesome miracle. You know They go out and look what Jesus says in verse 22. He says... Let us go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's go out in the middle of the lake and drown. He said, we're going over to the other side. Get in the boat and let's go. So they go over, and it's been a long day. They're worn out, and it's probably at night. Pretty sure it's at night. So he gets in the back, and he goes to sleep. So here his uh, disciples are trying to uh, row and sail and what have you to get to the other side. And what happens? Verse 23, as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. Now, this happens all the time on the Sea of Galilee because it's, if you remember, it's over 650 feet below sea level and the hills rise up above it. So when the storm comes over the hills, it comes right down and suddenly on the lake. You can't see it till it gets right up on you. And so that's Uh, exactly what happened here it descended upon the lake and they began to be swamped the boat waves are coming over they're getting ready to sink they're in danger and so here's jesus sacking out the back of the boat (laughs) now what are they thinking they what are they going to say to him? they go don't you even care do you see the trouble we're in do you not care about us And I can't help but think, I mean, this is like uh, somebody said, this is the ship of fools. But it's really not. It's, It's, you know, the storms of life is what this is. This is about the storms of life. And this is a test of faith. And it's the same test we get almost every day. Hopefully they're not too severe. But sometimes they are. The storms of life come upon you. And what do you say when they come? Same thing his disciples said. Jesus, you're sleeping through this. Do you not see what's happening? Do you not care about me? Do you not hear our cries? Are you going to let us sink? We say the same thing on a regular basis. If not vocally, surely inside you've said this. And that's exactly what's going on here. And you, you you can say... You know, that same day, why why doesn't God answer my prayer immediately? I'm in trouble when I'm in trouble. How could he allow this to happen to me? And it just, what, the the end result for them and for us is, it emphasizes the necessity of faith. We are expected to live by faith. And how is our faith ever going to be tested? How is our character and our belief ever going to be proven? if we don't have the storms of life it's hard to imagine that these are actually for our benefit especially when you're in the storm it's hard to imagine but as you see all these stories in the bible it's clear god allows he may even engineer he may be the one that says let's go out into the lake and a storm hits we live in a hostile world a hostile environment and it's full of trouble And God doesn't seem to care. And yet, as we persevere and overcome and endure, what happens? Our faith is built up. Our character is improved. And that's what happens to these guys. So the storms of God, the storms of life, excuse me, are used by God to teach us, to humble us. He's just been preaching a sermon about humility. And now he humbles these guys. He did something good for them. They just don't know it. He built their faith up. And so what does he say when they're amazed? Jesus stills the storm. It says he rebuked the wind. (laughs) Can you imagine that? And it all stopped. The whole storm stopped. And they were safe. And what did he say to the disciples? Yeah. Where is your faith? So that's what this was about. A test of their faith. And they were fearful and they were amazed. So now they did fear the storm, but now they fear Jesus. That's a healthy awe and reverence for Jesus that that only came because of the storm. You see that? The storm was an important event in their life. And what question do they ask? What have they been asking after each one of these things? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this guy? Right? That's what all this is about. And he's eventually going to answer that question. We'll get to that soon. All right? And now they've rowed all night. They've been through a storm. They barely survived. They get to the other side. They get out of the boat. They're probably exhausted Stumbling around, and what happens? Verse 26, the next miracle. The garrison demoniac. This is the guy you don't want to run into. This, This guy, you do not want to know this guy. They get out of the boat, and they have an immediate encounter with a wild, crazy man. And if you look, if you read the account, this guy is naked. Had no clothes on. He was filthy. In uh, Mark's account, we're told that he cut himself with sharp stones. He's blood, bloody, dirty, filthy. He's naked. And this guy's coming at him yelling, screaming at them. You can imagine what the guy smells like. <laughs> and how horrified they would be. And as going. Who in the world is this guy, and what, what does he want? And we find out what the problem is in verse twenty-seven. When he had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed by demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. He's naked, and was not. He was just living out in the open, and he's actually living in the, you know, place where they buried people. And seeing Jesus, he yelled out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. So the demons are speaking through him. And notice that they recognize who Jesus is. They know. And they know that he has power over them. So they're going, What are you, what are you here to do? They know their eventual destiny is a place called the abyss or the pit. Their version, the the angel's version, the demon's version of hell. And so Jesus says to them, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And so legion was a unit of the Roman military of thousands of men. So this guy's just loaded up with these things. And they were entreating Jesus, begging Jesus, Not to command them to depart into the abyss. Don't do that to us now. Please. They knew he had the power. And that was their eventual destiny. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him to permit them to enter the swine. And so Jesus said, fine, do that. And I think they were real pleased with themselves. They thought they tricked Jesus. Because they knew that uh, there was a local company that supported the whole countryside called Acme Pigs, Inc. (laughs) And they knew when all those pigs went into the lake and died, that the townspeople were going to be outraged, which they were. The price of Acme pig stock went, bam, (laughs) into the floor. They all lost money. That's just part of what Jesus is is doing, though. Uh, So the demons came out from the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And when the herdsmen who were there working uh, and herding the pigs, this huge flock of pigs, whatever you call them, herd, (laughs) herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city, And out in the countries, they told everybody what had happened. Or we lost our whole herd. They all went in the lake. And it's that guy's fault. And so the people, you you know what you would expect? Especially as you're reading this story, you'd expect when they come and see that this poor man who had been possessed and so tormented was now whole. He got cleaned up. And he was now in his right senses. And he's healed in that sense, and so you'd think they'd come out and go, "That is so wonderful! This poor man is taken care of, and he's been healed, and he's in great shape. Way to go, Jesus!" But no, they're like us and everybody we know. All they care about is the price of Acme Pig Ink. <laughs> it's down. They lost money. They're angry. So what happens? Verse 37, all the people of the country of the garrisons, and the surrounding district came and asked Jesus to get out of there, to depart from there. For they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But what about the guy? What happened to him? Well, naturally, the guy said, I'm coming with you. I want to follow you. You did this incredible thing for me. But look what Jesus says. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. How about that? He's basically saying, go and tell about Jesus. What did he do for you? How did he change your life? Pretty good evangelists. And we're not going to do this today, but later on in the book of Luke, they come back to this area where they were, and everybody there now meets him. They've been converted. So this guy had an incredible ministry. Incredible testimony. An incredible uh, ministry. Okay? So, uh, now... Jumping forward, we're going to skip the miracle and at the end of chapter 8, but it's, it's basically a miracle on the way to do a miracle in chapter 8, verse 40 through 56. And you've got a great contrast between an ostracized woman who's completely shunned by all of society, lost all of her money. She's been ripped off by everybody in comparison or contrasted with a rich guy who is the leader the head of the synagogue so he's a a rich guy who's also a great religious guy well thought of by everybody he comes to Jesus to get him to heal his son and on the way back this woman this poor woman who's bleeding and can't stop it comes to Jesus and touches him and of course when when she does Jesus stops and has this great conversation with her and heals her and forgives her, and it's a real dramatic scene. But can you imagine what the synagogue official was saying? He'd just been told, you know, your son just has a, a few minutes, a few hours to live. If you can get Jesus back here quickly, you can save him. So while Jesus is talking to this woman and healing her, this you know, the synagogue goes, wait a minute, I was here first. We're running out of time. Heal this woman and let's get out of here. Right? And so finally, Jesus and and the procession start to head for the guy's child. And what happens? Word comes, the child's dead. And naturally, just as you would think, Jairus says, if we hadn't stopped, you could have saved her. It's like, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing If you'd just done what I thought you ought to do, everything would have been great. But you didn't. And of course, you know the rest. Jesus raises the synagogue's official's child from the dead, which blows everybody's mind. And again, who is this guy? Right? And so uh, in chapter 9, verse 9. These stories are running around everywhere. And what does even Herod say? In Luke 9, 9, what does even Herod say? Do you see that? Who is this man about whom I hear such things? So even Herod's going, who is this guy? So everybody is asking that question. Then you have the miracle of the feeding of the five fowls. 5,000 there in chapter 9, verse 10. Another great miracle. And we're told that Jesus did it as a test of faith of the apostles. Isn't that awesome? He he did this incredible miracle. It's the only miracle that's in all four gospels. And it was all a test of their faith. To build up their faith. Okay? So where has this all been heading? All of these miracles, all this teaching has been heading to one place chapter 9 verse 18 turn to chapter 9 verse 18 now it came about that while he was praying alone the disciples were with him and he questioned them so this question is now going to finally be asked and answered about who Jesus is and he says to His disciples, you know, Peter, Simon Peter, James, John, all those guys. Who do the multitudes say that I am? Who who does all the crowd, all the people, who do they think I am? They've seen all this, heard all this, who do they think? And, of course, just as you would imagine, they, they thought highly of him. Oh, he's a great teacher. He's a prophet. He's the prophet that Moses promised. He's a great leader. He's a deliverer. So, wow, that's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Because then Jesus turns to Simon Peter and the other disciples, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And it's very clear he's saying, okay, who you say that I am needs to be much better, much improved, much more complete than who they say. Theirs is limited. So he turns to his disciples and, of course, uh, Peter answered for the group, you are the Christ of God. And in Matthew's account, it says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, which is probably more complete and in addition to what Luke is saying. It doesn't differ, it just adds to it, okay? And so this is what's important. What, it, what does that mean, The Christ. In, in uh, Greek, the Christ is meaning the anointed one of God. That's what it means. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. It means the same thing. The anointed one of God. God has sent him, chosen and sent him into the world. And he is the unique anointed son of God, meaning deity. He's God in the flesh, the son of the living God. And so he has a more complete view of who Jesus is. But there's still one more thing that they need to know and add to this. Yes, he is the Christ. Yes, he is the Son of God. But there's one more thing. He's the suffering servant. So what does Jesus say? Verse 22. Here's the rest of the story. This is what you need to know And you must believe, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then be raised up on the third day. You've got to understand that and you've got to believe that. In addition to his deity and his humanity, you've got to realize why he came and what he accomplished on your behalf. All right. C.S. Lewis, uh, in speaking of the deity of Christ, that great argument, you've probably heard it, called Lord, liar, or lunatic, but it's, it's awesome. hope you don't mind if I explain it one more time. Jesus claimed to be, and you can see it right here, because Jesus tells Peter when he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, you're right. And he says, flesh and blood did not explain that to you. But the Spirit of God alone can explain that. So this is a great contrast between what the the crowd thinks and what Simon Peter and the apostles think. God has revealed to them the truth, and they know the truth. And one more thing they need to know is what he's just said here. He's got to go and be sacrificed as an atonement for sin. And that's that's the important thing in that gospel message not only who Jesus is, but what he did, what he accomplished on our behalf. And so uh, C.S. Lewis says he's either the Lord, like he said he was, or he's lying and he knows it, or he thinks it's true but it's not, in that case he's a lunatic. So he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You can't go with the crowd or the public around the world. I mean, you know, everybody in the world thinks highly of Jesus. It doesn't matter what religion, if you're you're talking about Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Islam, they all see Jesus as a great prophet. Did you know that? They all think highly of Jesus. He was a great prophet, a great religious leader, a great man. But that's not enough. He's the Son of God, and He is alone, the provision God sent for our sin, the suffering servant who died on the cross on our behalf. And so he goes on to say to his disciples, and there's even more than that, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So in believing in him, this is what you will naturally do. You'll die to yourself. You'll deny yourself. You'll die to yourself and now live for him. And, you know, when you were baptized... I don't know if you remember what the the minister said, but that's basically what he says, right? So, as you go down in the water, it's uh, died and submerged as an identification of that and renewal of life when you come back up out of the water, right? That's what it's all about, symbolically. So, he says, let him not deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man, what is a man, profited if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Great question, right? Something that we all need to be able to answer. And I heard somebody say. What's the most valuable possession that you have? And they actually surveyed 1,000 people in this deal I was reading. And the, the survey came back, the most valuable thing I have, number one, answer was happiness. And then you had success, you had education and knowledge, you had influence, you had money, on and on and on. I wonder what Jesus, <laughs> I don't have to wonder, I can see what he said, is your most valuable possession. It's your soul. It's your soul. And what is your soul worth to you? How much gold would you receive for it? What would you sell it for? And, of course, Jesus and the New Testament also tells us what your soul is worth. Gives you the exact value. Puts a monetary value on it. Did you know that? Did you know that? The New Testament puts a monetary value on your soul. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18 says, The price of your soul has been established. It's the blood of Christ. Your soul has been bought with the blood of Christ. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. All these stories, they all point to the same thing. Who Jesus is, what he accomplished on our behalf, and what we need to believe so that we might be saved and forgiven and Lord we recognize what you paid for our soul and we love you and we thank you and we praise you just like that woman who was forgiven and in Jesus name we pray amen